Friday afternoon deploys back in was architected by the exhumed body of Frank Lloyd Wright. Digging through old Gitter logs <laughs> to find to find I'm, responses to snarky comments on open source projects that he left. Like it was six you know ago. it was maybe a little snarky, but it was a legit question though too. Like it was rhetorical, but I really <laughs> was you know, I, and I don't even remember what it was. I just rem- it was ridiculous. So there's yours. You see my comment? Because I was in there making yeah. snarky comments, yeah, too. exactly. Let's this be real. in that same vein. Yeah. What's the typical strategy for writing tests? Yeah. Because uh, uh, come to find out, you can't write tests against your code yeah. in, uh, in Shoop. Mm-mm-mm. Well, let me know when you find it. Okay. We'll take a walk down memory lane. Yeah. Wait, I, here I am. Oh, when, oh, there you are. Why does why does skew attribute on the product model and the abstract order line model uh, have two different max length values? Yeah. Did you get an answer? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and then it got buried. Uh, uh, did did oh what's his name? Nope. He totally ignored me. This is all that I have used mm. Gitter for. You ever use Gitter? No. It's it's like it's like a Slack client built on top of of GitHub Git, OAuth, yeah. and so like you can set up a, 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 a Slack like chat room around this your is a question. I ask. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and read that and see see if you would. <laughs> how would you defend yourself? We're letting Alex read the getter. Yeah. No, his face is telling a story. Yeah, his face is. I, I made I made it. that same face at some point while trying to debug that. It seems like a really distracting way to talk about code. It is, yeah, yeah, because it gets flooded, yeah, um, and yeah. a lot of people are using this now as it's like their. Tw- it's like Twitter for for an open source code project. It's kind of it's, becoming like a default way of doing support around an open source project. Yeah. Of like, go into our Gitter channel and, and ask stuff. I think there are probably merits to it, mm-hmm. um, but definitely most all I've used it for is being at a point of sheer frustration uh, with the documentation of a project. And going in and being like, how the fuck do you expect this to work? Um, just mm-hmm. like, because I'm never in there being, <laughs> I'm, by the time I make it into someone's Gitter channel, admittedly, I'm well past the point of like, what a great project. Just wanted to say thanks <laughs> yeah, for your work. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, if I've made it there, I, I've exhausted Stack Overflow and everything else I can think of. But it's a cool concept. Probably a good time to, uh, <laughs> to announce that we have a Gitter. Uh, ah, yeah, indeed. yeah, yeah. Good segue. So we're trying it out, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, for the show, and uh, thinking about doing a a patron only version of that uh, for the behind the scenesness. But it's not structured around a crappy open source project that we're doing a bad job of maintaining. So that's good, right? So don't come to our Gitter channel and yell at us about documentation. Yeah, no. there, there are, there are no docs. Con- you can yell at us about the content of the show. Yeah, and we will promptly ignore yeah, it. Yeah, we're yeah, yeah. exactly. We're just supporting <laughs> a, a crappy podcast right here. On, mm-hmm. uh, 
And that reminds me, I mentioned patrons. We had some, I got some shout outs to do. We got a, we got a pile yeah. of new patrons this week. Oh. Yeah, we got Austin Hackett. Uh, Austin, you, you met Austin. You may not have known. He was, he was at the uh, Fayette Pie meetup last night. Uh, I'll show you a picture. Okay. Later. You got yeah. a confused look. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Austin joined us. Uh, uh, Max Nesdier, and I'm really sorry if I pronounced that mm. badly, but I'm bad at reading. Mm. Um, That's uh, true. Welcome, Max. Uh, Evan Matiza, you know Evan, also oh, at the yeah. at the meetup last yep, night. He was yeah. big hit at the meetup last night. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then Clay Mollis, who's oh, a, yeah. a future or future uh, uh, a, a previous lofty Farian. Yeah. Uh, yeah, used to work with us a couple years back. Uh, thanks, Clay. Clay made like a super generous contribution, by yeah. the way. So thanks, man. That's that's pretty awesome, man. Uh, he said hope, he's, I hope we're making your commute. That's right. Less he's listening. Yeah. yeah, listening to us on his commute. So thanks to we got new patrons. So uh, patreon.com slash Friday afternoon deploy. You guys are awesome. Uh, we're like we're gonna be upgrading the studio. Oh yeah. With all the tens of dollars we've got now, which actually goes a long way. Don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Like yeah. we we haven't invested a whole lot into the setup here. No, uh, but it's, so, so it doesn't take a whole lot it's to improve nicer. it. Getting nicer. We're not in yeah. the wooden chairs anymore. That's true. We're in these squeaky chairs now. Yeah. The the mics are clamped to the tabletop they now instead of being are. clamped to the wooden chairs. <laughs> uh, wooden chairs, beams, yeah. uh, the the so dresser drawer over there. <laughs> there's still not there's still not vibration insulated, which is why you hear this every once in a while. Yep. But uh, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. yeah. This is how startups evolve. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> VC money. <laughs> we light that shit on fire. Yeah. yeah. We, we need some VC money to spend. Mm-hmm. But yeah, thanks thanks a lot to our, our patrons. It's awesome. Uh, I, I, it, that has been more successful than I... I, we, I almost made that tongue-in-cheek. Mm. Ah, no one's going to give a shit enough mm-hmm. to do that. So, so thanks to you guys. Yeah, I know. That's awesome. Because I was totally all like, oh, let's have an Etsy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're supposed to be sewing like Kubernetes uh, beer koozies. I know, or and instead like, I'm crocheting just, them. I'm just uh, deploying code to Kubernetes clusters right now. We got a Friday afternoon deploy on our hands. What's to, great? To be real people would buy those. Come on, be honest. With totally. Yourself. Oh yeah, absolutely. That oh, sounds I would like buy one. Yeah. I mean, that's that's swag these days. Yeah. At, at shows and stuff. Hell, everyone's getting socks. Mm. I'm thinking about getting some lofty socks. Yeah. To hand out. I think that's solid. Have you seen the the slack socks? I like no. the slack socks. They okay. got the slack. They got the slack plaid pattern. Oh. The color pattern. Nice. <laughs> Pretty good. JB Hunt had some. They did. They had some socks that they had done for a recent conference here locally that said um, "Truck Yeah." Truck Yeah on them. Whoa. I got me a pair of them. Super edgy. Mm-hmm. Are you wearing those? No, not right now. But I mean, like on they're, the regular. Uh, no. Um, you had your hands up. Were they like knee high? They're socks? like this long, they're like laden, laden hose. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and the the material that they're made out of is very similar too. So they they they'll probably be great this winter with my cowboy boots. There you go. Seriously, because that's they chafe the they chafe the calves. Mm. So you need some you need some trucky ass JB Hunt socks that don't there. breathe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good call. Mm-hmm. We got Alex with us today as well. Hey, what's Welcome up? Welcome back, Alex. Thanks. Uh, and I think we're we're going to talk about. Uh, Probably food and movies. Uh, we usually do, but on top of that, uh, application and Star Wars and Star. We had a lot of. <laughs> we went deep on Star Wars yeah. this morning. Yeah. Here at Friday afternoon deploy, it is Star Wars Friday. Yeah, <laughs> every Friday, every, every Friday. Friday. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, but we're going to talk about like application structure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Alex, so, that was you, that you had this. This you wanted to talk about this. Is there anything in particular? That you wanted to start off with on that, because there's a lot of 
you know, obviously a lot of different ways to structure amps. Yeah. Uh, initially, there, I think there's a lot of baggage that comes with application structures in general. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of come in and out with, uh, with programming fads. Mm-hmm. For sure. It, the same with the same with uh, JavaScript, right? The JavaScript libraries and frameworks. There's always there's always a new one, and when something a, has problems, a new one and, and ten derivatives of that new one and ten derivatives. Yeah, right. And I, I feel like application structures are very similar. Mm. Ten years ago, the Monolith app was like the hot stuff, and now we've been transitioning into a microservice microservices fad and then kind of transitioning out of it but at the same time um we we're seeing a, a lot more with like uh kubernetes and amazon right as more of the microservice structure but yeah. not necessarily code structure like mm-hmm. i that's that's what i i think that um kubernetes was was created in response to a need to manage microservices. Because we were just talking about this a little while ago, Alan. Yep. Like, um, someone was asking you, yeah. hey, how do you manage all like, these microservices? Yeah, how they, do you deploy them all? Right. And they were like, do you, do you guys use microservices? And you know, and I was like, yeah, I mean, wherever it's appropriate. You know, and I kind of think that's where we're at with microservices. Yeah. Kind of dialing it back a little bit, going yeah. like, maybe we, maybe we don't need one for everything. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, I I wouldn't this I is wouldn't our, enjoy it without Kubernetes, like to so to manage it. I that, just want to build with, an image and push it. And yeah, yeah, with Kubernetes, it's it's so easy to deploy independent microservices and scale them independently and give you mm-hmm. all the tools you need. Because once once you're in a microservice architecture, you mm-hmm. kind of lose all of the control of how how you manage like performance and scale. Right, because one service can get clobbered mm-hmm. by another service, and you might need more of that microservice independently. So, if you're just like deploying all these things on bare metal, and, like that, that machine does user services, and that machine does comment reply services, you know, right. <laughs> and then like suddenly you're you're taking way more comments than you are taking user registrations. You got to scale them independently, mm-hmm. and like managing that shit, even with like modern tooling like Ansible, right would be awful yeah i think yeah it's it, it's complicated like if you're if, yeah. you, if you're making a big change to an app that requires you to to touch like several microservices like the idea of having to independently deploy those imagine like one deploy fails and you gotta roll the others but i mean just a nightmare imagine you know your 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 user management service or your commenter service and then you need to scale it horizontally so you what do you do you fire up another terraform script and mm-hmm stand up a new one and then run your ansible playbook against it that's, yeah and you've got a you got a load balancer in front of it so that you can balance traffic across all those nodes yeah. and now every microservice has a load balancer in front of it so your infrastructure costs are going up and your complexity is going up doesn't work so kubernetes answered that question mm-hmm. are microservices like kind of the concept going away um in as much as like it's it's less of a fad now mm-hmm. i totally agree um, and so we're finding out, okay, there's an appropriate time to do this and not do this. Right. But the side effect, Kubernetes is here to stay. Sweet. Yeah. Like, 100%. Yeah. Like, deploy your monoliths with Kubernetes, too, because that's, cause that's better than the old way also. Yeah, I that's think. true. We've, it's, we've been able to take a lot, of the, a lot of the good things and learn from the bad things and then 
use that to come out with an all all around better product. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and someone's going to challenge that. We're yeah. going to get an angry email or comment, and we're going to get a snarky comment in our Gitter chat mm. um, that microser- so. microservices are, are everything. And I don't mean to say they're not no, like, right. important to a lot of different businesses. I'd love to hear how they're, they're so important to, to someone for everything. <laughs> have, 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 you ever, have you ever been on a project where you, you had microservices implemented and you were doing everything that you were supposed to be doing and you just felt this would be so much easier. Yes, if I was. Yes, okay. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. Like, yeah. can't yeah. I just import that code over here and write a damn side effect rather than having to, you know, put it, there's a web service in between? Like, I need to make an API call to that. Mm-hmm. And like, so many of these things, like, especially when people go crazy with microservices and everything's split out, mm-hmm. but like, for good reason. Doing shit in one part of your app causes side effects in other parts of your app. That's, I mean, that's software, right? Mm, like, right. you click a button over here and it changes something over there, and you need to trigger some other thing that happens. And that becomes a big Rube Goldberg device of web requests bouncing around your cluster. But often, like, you need to, to implement a feature to completion. You need to touch all of those pieces along the way. Right. And you're actually working on, you know, multiple microservices that may be, depending on people, how. You know, there's the whole release cycle side of microservices, which is you know probably less developed, mm-hmm. um, like and sophisticated. How do you manage ensuring that all of those versions get released simultaneously? Do you release all of your microservices every time you do a release of the product? You could, mm. but I would argue that now you're are you really getting the benefit of microservices? So it's a, it's a tough problem, right? Yeah, there's not an easy solution to that. I I've always struggled with making the delineation. For small scale application, for smaller applications, not there. There are, uh, I think, microservices kind of evolved naturally out of taking these enormous applications and being like, "All right, this is unsustainable. How do we make this sustainable?" Mm-hmm. But when then taking that ideology and a lot of people creating new applications with microservices in mind, or taking relatively small applications and refactoring them to become microservices. Um. I, I sometimes struggle with the delineation of why would we want to do microservices at this scale as opposed to in, in Django having multiple apps yeah. inside of a project or in Rails having engines instead of the major Rails thing, which mm. it, it's essentially having multiple apps inside your Rails app. Right. I, I think that um, I think that uh, for me, a line you know, there's definitely like a litmus test that is. If you're building microservices and it's purely for like separation of concerns and code organization, mm-hmm. that that's not a good enough reason. Yeah, right. Uh, that's uh, where you uh, can you can just organize your code base better. Right, right, with multiple apps and things like that. But one place where I think you find a really good reason to implement microservices is when, for a really good reason, you want to implement that service with a different set of technology. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. Yes. Like this is too slow to be done in Python. We want to use Go. Mm-hmm. How, what's the best way to integrate Go in my app? And I don't think you should build a monolith that like opens a sub process and, and calls <laughs> like a bash script or something like that. Right? right. That was the old school way of like, how do I make my Python do Java? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, sub process dot p open and, and you know and run the slow, jar yeah. slow as hell, and you're gonna think about it at night when you're laying in bed and regret it. But like, what else are you gonna do? You know. 
Um, so I think that's a good reason to do it. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Is that fair? I mean, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I that, think that's fair. That's when it's made sense. I, there was a project we did. Yeah. Now when you worked on that microservice. Totally made sense. We we had um we were using Tika, uh, which is an open source Apache uh tool. It's written in Java. Um and so you can run it as a server or you can run it as a command line tool basically. And it parses text uh, out of files, um, covers a lot of different files. Pretty awesome tool. Pretty much any like desktop or word processing or, yeah. or PowerPoint. Like if you need to extract text data from it, it handles like forty different formats and extracts the file metadata yep. even too. Um, and very useful, but uh, you know it, it's it's a pain to think about, and especially you know sort of a chicken and the egg thing, but. In a Docker environment, on a Docker container, you should be running one process. And so then immediately, if, if I'm running Django too, it doesn't make sense to also run Java on, on yeah. this, you know, this container too. Um, and, and that might be an easy lipness test for when you need to branch off into microservices. If, if you're wanting to run more than one process on a container and if, the, if it's completely different, like not, you know, um, and then the memory constraints at Java really just made it like, no, yeah, let's this put this needs to be a con- separate thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and it would fall over, uh, but it it was, what was there was another one we were using Unicomp. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was that would let us take those same documents, desktop processing documents, and convert them to PDFs, so yeah. visual representation. But that uh, guy kept falling over. But it didn't. Yeah. Re- it didn't really matter. Didn't crash the app. <laughs> yeah, uh, he would just Kubernetes sca- rebooted scale him, but, it up, yeah. and then and then we were using RabbitMQ, and so if mm-hmm. a task failed, it'd go back on the queue and then hit hit another instance of. That microservice and so that I think that again, that but. particular project is a really good example of of one reason. Like at least if you use the criteria we're setting here, yeah, mm-hmm. one reason why we chose to use microservices. Right. I mean, like we were we had Python and Django over here. Mm-hmm. We had um, two different uh, appliances like that, mm-hmm. Apache Tika and Unicomv, mm-hmm. uh, and we also needed to write some custom processing. It was Go to it, that yeah. was written in Go, yeah. And, and so mm-hmm. we needed all these things working together, and they were all dependent on one another. And so that was like a that made a lot of sense. Plus, okay. plus, you know, so I remember an interesting scenario happening there of where most of the time we end up working on the app code itself and the microservices that since they just did one thing pretty much write it and then leave it and then deploy it. And, yeah. And it'll They were like supporting day. services yeah, almost. Yeah, totally. Okay. Because within the, the service of the of that project that was uh, Python and Django code base, there were multiple apps. The entire API was running in that service. So we didn't like, it wasn't like this, this route, this segment of the API goes to this service. So right. we kind of had a sort of a monolith, quote unquote, architecture within one of the services and so we found auxiliary services that made right. sense to kind of set out to the side yeah. okay that, that makes sense because there's a clear delineation and there is like a separation of concern yeah like this yep. is kind of a separate thing and we yep. but we have one unit test suite that ran against one major application code base yeah and sort of like the back-end web app was a service mm-hmm. as opposed to individual components of the web app being yeah a service. yeah it you know Authentication being a big one that it would handle, and then all the services, of course, lived in a in their own virtual private private network. network so. Yeah, okay. So that was we liked we liked that architecture, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm still a fan of the 
I mean, we we still have we have several. Pro- you're building one right now, mm-hmm. and we've got some internal projects that we're just running a Django app in Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Like that's all Kubernetes is doing is managing a container with a Django app on it, and maybe things like. Uh, um, we got yeah, Redis cache and our, yeah, and and uh, and our message queue, um, yeah. and then the workers. Which that's the other thing about Kubernetes, though. Somebody was asking me, you know, well, AWS kind of does that, and I was like, yeah, the auto scaling group will totally do the same thing, mm-hmm. a lot slower. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, if if you already have that baked memory. And then you just put that on a machine, <laughs> baked memory. <laughs> ba- like you know, it, yeah. yeah, it's like crystallized mm-hmm. baked memory. I think I think Sloan described it as as crystallized memory. Yep. Once like that, um, it's a lot faster. You can literally click a button and just scale out your workers, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so you know that's that's not really microservice, but it's kind of microservice-y, you know, that you can... Yeah, like using the tooling of microservices to just make the management of applications. It's almost like a bastard microservice architecture. Mm -hmm. I can say I've had better experiences with microservices for the project infrastructure more so than the code bases. That's exactly how we're using it. That's a good way to say it. These are like supporting appliances and infrastructure Mm -hmm. services. The Mm -hmm. kind of shit that like... Back in the day, you'd be like, I need to run my Rails app, so I need to go turn on my database, and I need to go turn right. on my Redis cache, right. and I need to turn on Elasticsearch, and you'd have all these auxiliary services. Yeah, I and just I miss the acronyms of all the monoliths, you know, the LAMP stack. <laughs> the WIMP stack. <laughs> the, <laughs> mean, ever, the mean stack was mean, all the rage for oh my gosh. You ever, use, uh, you ever use MAMP? Which was the Mac? It was it was Wasn't, it was Wasn't Lamp, it? but Mac instead of Linux. Oh uh, no, I, I didn't back I, then. I, I, I remembered. Uh, so I'm going to be. I hope I can announce this. Uh, I'm going to be on the Talk Python podcast uh, coming up sometime in the next couple months. Ooh, we're, nice. Yeah, we're recording soon, and so uh, one of the things we're, we're talking about freelancing, mm. and kind of one of the questions on there is like, how did you get into Python? Uh, and that that's that fun story. because my answer to that question is I lied, <laughs> uh, and and when I lied, um, I said oh, I'll figure it out. And yeah. then I started reading about this Python stuff before I started. I was like I can lean on my PHP stuff to because it was like building a bunch of micro uh, sites, yeah. not microservices, but just little sites. Um, so I was like, so I, those are greenfield. I can build those with PHP, and I'll figure out this Python stuff. And then I remember like the day before my job interview, I'm like, all right. Python, Django, tutorial, let's do this. And I was like, hang on a second. I fired up my MAMP server, you mm, know, that was mm, running mm. Apache on, on my uh, Mac. And I was like, where do I put the files, though? <laughs> like, yeah. like, I just put them in the web root? No, this is just serving Python yeah. source code to yeah. me. This is weird. It's been a while what since is I've this? thought about that. Yeah. yeah. I used a XAMPP. Uh, XAMPP or XAMPP? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What were the two Ps? I don't know. I don't know why it had two P's. Pa- PowerPoint. But must be, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, I guess the I guess the X PHP was admin was for it, the other. It P. actually probably was that yeah. did come with PHP. It, my it admin. certainly did. It was the full stack to run all your PHP. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hoping uh, these would come up. I just yeah. I'm remembering that <laughs> yeah. orange page oh, when know, it loaded. No, oh, you know yeah. that burnt orange yeah. color of yeah. Uh, oh, it's I know. got a chill. Yeah. 
but, at, but at the time, it felt it felt all right because you know, felt cool. Did, then didn't know any better. Yeah, it's like oh, cool. Now I can do server side stuff too. In I mean, my, it in was my HTMLs. To be fair, outside of writing like Tomcat applications with Java, mm-hmm. you didn't really have many other options, right? Yeah, this people you building servlets, people by, building web then. frameworks in Python. People thought they were fucking nuts. Mm. Like, oh, mm. that sounds okay. Have fun with that, you know. And and this is before Rails, right? Right. right. Uh, yeah. There nobody was, was there doing was it then. Bottles was was way back then. Yeah. Uh, this predates whiskey. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or I, well, or it's around the time you had mob whiskey for Apache for for that. Sort yeah. Of stuff. So it was probably around the time. Probably somebody came up with that. Like first we need to parse HTTP. Cool. Now we can write apps. Yeah. Apps that handle that. Go nuts. Yeah. But that was a big change for me mentally of this world where the source code being executed wasn't an HTML preprocessor mm-hmm. happening in the rendering of like a file off a disk. And instead like you had a process running that would dynamically eat the HTML eat right? the, well, it, it would, it would, it would eat programmatically the, the HTTP requests coming in and generate an HTTP response going yes. out. Um, cause I, I remember being super frustrated after I got into that job and I was writing some Python and, and like trying to debug and just wanting to like print out like variables in the executing code yeah. and see it in the browser. Like, no, like print that. Where, where does it go? Like, I didn't, you know, it was being piped to an air log somewhere on that yeah. server. And I, I was just so confusing. It's like, no, I should be able to like write a print statement and see the output in the middle of the web page wherever I put that print statement. But it doesn't work that way. Doesn't work. No. Nope. Yep. I, so. I do remember that making the jump from just writing. Just writing Ruby to then learning Rails. So you were in Ruby hmm. prior to Rails. Yes, That's what were you doing in Ruby My, without Rails? Yeah, uh, learning programming. Oh, okay, <laughs> got it. Got it. Got I was yeah. on. I was on the strict course. Of, I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, you need right. to learn so, Ruby. You had a destination so that, in mind. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Rails yeah. was the next step. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, that always fascinates me because I people wrote Ruby before Rails, but I've never met one of those people. Mm. And aside from. A tutorial like first learn Ruby then Rails, but like uh, people are using that programming language for other things besides building web apps. Yeah, like uh, Homebrew, right? Homebrew, yeah. yeah, Homebrew's Ruby. written in Ruby. Ruby. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what Ruby was like before Rails. Mm-hmm. Me too. I've thought about this because like I, Python, so much science in it. I feel like it, Ruby, you know, but, w- Ruby was like the city of of the city. Through the town of Woodstock, mm, just yeah. hanging out, being all chill, being cool, running yeah. a roadside motel, you know. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this big fucking show came to town, yeah. and everyone was like, "We're not against it, but like, wow, yeah. everything's changing. <laughs> Who are all these people? <laughs> Where'd they get the piercings? <laughs> you know, yeah. like yeah. that's what I imagine happened to the Ruby community in like 2003." Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or whenever that was. Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so I don't know. I wonder what people were doing. What, yeah. what were you doing in Ruby before before all that stuff? Yeah, certainly writing code. Like, you know, yeah. doing just, just writing scripts, just computer mm. stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Python's the same way. That's what I, I was doing. Python around yeah. that time, just dinking around with it in the console. I think like, you you go to like you know nineteen ninety eight. 
and you find someone that writes in Python, and you're like, hey, what do you do with that? And it was probably just like, I like this better than Perl, because mm. Perl's ugly, mm-hmm. um, and I hate regular expressions, mm-hmm. uh, or I hate, be- I hate being forced to use them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. And so I, u- I use this, and I, and I glue all my scripts together with, with this Python stuff. A lot of it, yeah, you know, or you were probably doing some science with it. I think the data science stack is relatively new for Python. I think so. You know, yeah. I mean, people were doing it. Today. It was an academic language. So I yeah. think there are a lot of people learning programming. I'm yeah. totally fucking speculating right here. I don't, I don't know shit about this. I, I know it had to I have am, some kind of statistics in there somewhere because Collections has been in it for a while. That's true. That's, yeah. You yeah. Know, but definitely uh, embraced in the scientific community. Here we go. I'm kind of, I'm kind of I'm, I'm looking up the learning. history of SciKit-Learn. As, How old as, is this? As somebody who doesn't have a computer science degree, I'm pretty against... Uh, having programming languages specifically for teaching programming. You mean like a specific one for like a learning language, like teaching someone schemes Scheme. to learn, yeah. to learn programming and I then agree. being like, well, all the concepts you just learned, they're going to stick with you for the rest of your life. Time to learn another language. You're, you're going to forget everything. Yeah. yeah also yeah. no scheme projects. Yeah. No scheme jobs. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Not transferable. That was, that was the mentality though for a long time, I guess with uh, Pascal, I know. And, uh, what was, there was, uh, there's a few back then that were learning languages that Ruby and, and uh, Python inherited mm-hmm. from, which makes them, they're great though. I, I definitely, Ruby and Python, I think are great to start learning programming. Oh, same. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that it's going to do for you. Yes. That you don't have to think about. Yes. They're very learning. They're very learner friendly. Mm-hmm. You don't have to manage memory and things like that. No, thank you. Yeah. So, so check this out. SciPy. I'm going to write a driver though one day. Ooh, just for fun. Ambitious. Mm-hmm. Uh, SciPy, which is the foundational library underneath Scikit-Learn, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of uh, yeah. you know, it's like it's used in tandem a lot with like the Numba panda stack things right. like that. Uh, People just install it with Conda now. But, yeah. yeah. First release was in 2001. So okay. that shit didn't exist in 1995. Yeah. Python well, surely did, right? So yeah, it was it was really basic then. I I got into it uh, early 2000s because um, I, I was telling you about the old logo mm-hmm. that had a Windows XP machine and a uh, little desktop to double click your Python to run the interpreter, and uh, it was a it was a green more look like an actual snake. I say actual. It was a little cartoony snake. An actual 16 by 16. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Snake. Yeah, an actual 16-bit little snake there. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah, so uh, that's... That, I, what, uh, when was Python invented? Uh, um, uh, look, I got the 90s, right? I got like the Wikipedia right before right Ruby, I think. Uh, 1991. Mm, 1991. Cool. Yep, so people were doing it. Um, Python 2 didn't come out until 2000. I have no idea what Python 1 looked like. Yeah, me neither. So I got into it, Python 2. I want to say... Python 1 has got to be like the Windows 3.1 of of this ecosystem, right? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Now I'm curious what... Can you even? Because they have. Where are the Python one docs? Well, Python.org, They have all the. How far now? How far back does that go? Right? Because you could do download, release, and then. Oh no! I gotta find out. I like. I I, I'm suddenly it. like I'm spend my whole fucking weekend trying to build an app in Python, <laughs> Python. one just to see. Yeah. You'll get no library. It's all standard library. Yep. There's gonna be nothing that you can do. Right. Uh, but I just want to know what it was like. 
It's like going camping. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like, just see what it's like for a weekend. So, so why are you doing that? Yeah. Like, I don't, you know, just to kind of see what it was like, you know, back in the old days and, and just get in touch with my, my roots, with you know. No, with no plumbing. Yep. And, and, and no modern conveniences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to do that. That would be fun. All releases. So there's another, I don't know if this qualifies as an app architecture necessarily, or at least not on the like, because uh, microservices goes down into the infrastructure layer. Yes. Um, but there's this new thing. I was talking to you about it earlier, Alex, and, and you hadn't heard this term, progressive web apps. Mm-hmm. PWA, I guess people call them. Um, Alan, have you heard that, progressive web apps? I have not. So this is like... This must be... It's not, not that I'm, I'm, I got my pulse on the culture, but yeah, I thought it, I started seeing exactly. I I, yeah. I I started seeing this term thrown around, and particularly like one company, um, Dockyard. If you're familiar with Dockyard, mm-hmm. they're a, a pretty well known development consultancy. Um, has gone all in on this concept of progressive web apps, and I kind of thought it was a bullshitty term, uh, buzzwordy thing, right. and it may still be, but it's it's essentially. What you get when you build a web application um, using the latest techniques and styles of building front ends isolated from back ends and all of the new things that you can build in uh, using the browser with like local storage and hmm. um, you know storing state in the browser and having offline modes where you store state that gets synchronized back. Okay. Yeah. This notion is a progressive web app. It's, it's a spa, Mm -hmm. right? A single page application with some additional bells and whistles and features on top of it. And so there, um, I don't know who's branding, who's driving this notion of this is this is what a progressive web app is, but it's it's things like desktop notifications coming from mm. your web application. That's more than a spa. Yeah. Um, that's that's this progressive web app concept. Okay. I thought it was kind of silly. Yeah. But until I accidentally built one, mm. um, and then I realized, oh, this is way different. Uh, which is, you know, that e-commerce app I built recently, mm-hmm. Alan. Yep. Um, this was the first time I had built, you know, we've built spas before that are meant to be like like desktop applications. Right. And we're used to those behaving that way. It's a, it's a tool, not really a website, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, um, in, in its form and function. But I built this e-commerce site, which is like a website. You like browse it and go page by page and you click on a thing and you get a page. You know, it's not like windows and dialogues opening mm-hmm. up. You're just navigating. You're not like, right clicking stuff. And, yeah. yeah. And so I built that, but I built it with Vue.js on the front end and uh-huh. I put an API behind it and I built, you know, used sessions or local storage and things like that to make it convenient because honestly, the tooling forces you to now. It's using state management with Vuex and, and all that stuff. And after I started building it, I started using it, and I was like, "Whoa, this actually is this is different because I'm interacting with a website, but like I'm navigating page by page in this website, and it's instant, mm-hmm. right? There's no round trip to the server, so it's like a spa, but it's like building a spa for your marketing website almost. Is is you can think it, of it that interesting. way? Okay. And until I was doing it and clicking around on it and realizing, like, man, I can pull up the shopping cart instantaneously. And to the end user, it's like they're browsing a website, but there's all this benefit and like the transactions back and forth to the back end are all API driven and really fast. And then you build it a totally different way, mm-hmm. like submitting forms. You're not actually submitting post requests with the form. And, and I don't know, it, it, it struck me then when I was doing it, that like this really is a different thing. This is kind of different than a spa. Um, 
because it's not like every button click is associated with an API call. Exactly. Mm. And it's not really a single page. You're like navigating page by page and the content is changing entirely. You know, it's not like there's a, a view in the middle and the navigation mm-hmm. floats around it. Yeah. Because um, I, I originally, um, I remember this had its day in the sun was the, the single page scroller. Yeah. Which yes. I thought were cool uh, at the time. You click a thing, like in the top you have your navigation, click about, and it just scrolls to the about section. Oh, yeah. Like that, those guys. And then you had the infinite scrolls. Yep. Like the Pinterest thing, masonry, yeah. and it goes forever. And then people started, guy, guy would always get me, the implement, there were two design concepts that were really popular at the same time. Mm. Infinite scroll and fat footers. Where you had like this giant footer at the bottom with all you had like really thin navigation at the top mm-hmm. and all the shit that like people needed to find but you didn't want to promote all the way to the top you put in a fat footer but then they put infinite scroll on top of it and you could never get to the fucking careers page <laughs> you just like keep scrolling like, I saw it but it kept going like the, I'm opening up the terminal and trying to throw a hand grenade into a JavaScript <laughs> callback so that it just blows up instead of infinite scrolling <laughs> uh, but yeah so it was it was after building that I felt like this is definitely something different this concept of a progressive web app. And also it felt really weird. Okay. I think we talked about it when I was building it. I was like, I don't know. Am I doing this right? It's weird. Like, I'm building an e-commerce website, a, a store, but I'm building it like a piece of desktop software almost. And it just felt like, man, like, you know, soccer moms are going to be using this on their cell phone. Should I really be putting all this, like, should the, should Webpack really be in the loop here? Uh, and it <laughs> yeah. just felt like I was doing it the wrong way. But it's a cool, it's a cool app. And so mm. I kind of like this. Like, this is how we're going to build websites now. Interesting. Yeah. So, Even so, marketing websites we're going to build that way. So as things are being submitted and added to the cart and things are being clicked on, you're storing that information in local storage? And yeah, so, at some yeah. point, you just... Post it all back. Exactly. So it's using it's using Vuex. It's using like Vuex, a flux model. Vuex has a, a plugin, or it's also actually really pretty easy in Vuex to write your own kind of uh, hooks um, that will just every time you change the state, it it pushes it to the local storage, and so you have a JSON blob in there that has yeah. all your local And it's state. reading from the local storage, which is instant. Instantaneous. Yeah, exactly. So like when you're taking actions on the site, you get instant visual feedback that it's changed, then it's synchronizing with the API in the back end. So I, I pulled it up. Obviously the guests, uh, the, the listeners can't see it, but you can see like I'm clicking through pages of a website and it's instantaneous. And I now open something. up your developer thing and show him the... Add something to the cart and it's there's a bug and that happens. But yeah, so you can... You can see if I open up developer tools in the network tab, as I'm clicking around, you know, it's making API calls. Um, so it's, it's really neat. Um, I have to figure out what broke, what broke this thing there. I got something huh. in my cart now, right? Remove it from the cart, instantaneously gone, but it's syncing with the API. Oh, because so, first what it does is it stores it in local storage mm-hmm. and then updates the Instant view. Instant state. That's and then right. makes the API call the slow part. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Uh, and and there's a synchrony step there, so you can see that like it feels. Doesn't it feel? Doesn't it look strange? It looks strange to me. I'm pulling up a store. I pull up an item. You know, I've got my cart indicator here, and I click add to cart, and it's there. And it's like I'm using a desktop app, but it looks like a website. And it's a, I think, just a really cool thing. Mm. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I like it. I do too. Cool. It feels weird though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Just it feels, a little bit. It doesn't feel like a website, but 
It's better than a website. It's better. Obviously. Yeah, I think it's I think it's better. Personally, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of single page applications. Right. Where you've just got the the one view and everything's loading inside of it. Right. I, I don't like I, I don't like how those feel. Yeah. As from a from a user perspective, and I hate building them. So, yeah, but but this feels like a nice in between. It is. It's mm. it's kind of straddling. You know, I said it was an evolution of spas. That's probably not true. It's kind of in the middle. Mm. It's embracing both sides Just of that architecture. More of an evolution of, of software development. Yeah. That I'm, I, I see here uh, developers.google.com web progressive web apps. Uh, mm-hmm. They got a talk on PWAs. Oh, pois. Oh, pois. You ever built a pois? <laughs> pois. I've tried it out. Mm. I've dabbled in pause. Yeah. So Paul's on desktop and Chrome OS. Mm. So I'm curious on your guys' thoughts then on just a, a generic, uh, a ge- this just a generic problem. How you would go about architecting this if you had an application where you needed a you needed a, a web facing. It had needed to be web facing, mm-hmm. but you also needed a mobile version, mm-hmm. either with like. Uh, React Native or full iOS, native yeah, full native. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But the idea being, you have a you have a, a web version and a mobile version. Do you go with something where you the mobile where the web version has a JavaScript front end, and you have an API that all the apps talk to, mm-hmm. and you make it microservice esque, or do you have the web app be a, a single monolith that Exposes API endpoints mm. for the mobile to hit. Mm, good question. Or is is there something else that you would do? And there's a middle ground there too, mm. right? There's the idea of a monolith that serves its HTML content up, but then that HTML content, like you can use Django to crank out views that that also include JavaScript that can interact with those same APIs, right? Yes. That's kind of a middle ground, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, That's something we're pretty familiar with. Do you, you have a thought on this, Alan? Uh, on, on what's the right way to do it? You know, yeah, kind of depends. I, I kind of lean in, towards the, the middle ground you mentioned, just because that's, that's more familiar. That's what we've done a lot. Um, yeah. The purist in me says, build one backend API and totally isolate mobile and front end from it and use that same API in both places mm-hmm. so yeah. that you get a consistency of behavior. Right. Right. If it works over here, it works over there. And you don't get into a place where you find yourself as the product evolves going like, well, that's really easy to do on the mobile app. Mm. But really hard to do in the web or the other way around with the monolith. Yeah, I can add a form, but doing it on the mobile app, well, now we got to add an API to the Ah, microservice. I see. So I like the idea of of having both the web UI and the mobile UI using the exact same like data access layer. Yeah. So that they have the same capabilities. If you can do it on mobile, you can do it on web. It just like opens up, even if you make a business choice to not expose that feature Mm -hmm. on mobile. Your hands aren't tied. There's already an API for it when you integrate it in on the website. You can do it later, right? Yeah. Right. All all facets of your web app, uh, all facets of your applications have access to the same data and functionality. It's just whether you decide to expose those endpoints or not. Now, that's what I think 
you should do. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. What what we actually do and what I, I do and it has happened often is and a lot of this gets driven by for us and client services, client needs and deadlines, but build the web app and we'll bolt an API on later. Yeah. That happens a lot. And it doesn't not work, but it definitely introduces technical debt. There's oh, going to be places okay. where you have stuff that's not really designed to work with an API paradigm in mind, and then you have to figure out how to make it an API. And then like, there's that form that you fill out on the website, and that one works, but the API mm. uh, endpoint that you expose is actually not the same code, right? Right, so because one gets updated and the other doesn't get updated. Yeah, yeah. or or you know one, yeah, those kind of things are just an edge case exists in one and not the other. So you have like works on mobile but not on desktop. Those kinds of problems. Gotcha. It's it, very error prone. Certainly can be. Yeah, that's and that's. I've been in the, in that situation where I I've definitely put JavaScript in the bottom of a template and built an API because of I knew there was a requirement that there was an existing. Uh, mobile app already. Yep. And so I was like, cool, let's, I'll just build an API and then we can still serve templates because the rest of the app, the rest of the, of the I, I was about to say desktop because that's the way mobile apps are starting to feel these days. But, you know, the browser app, the web app, serve its own templates, but that way you have one data access layer to maintain. I I definitely I totally agree and I, and I've also seen I think that there can be some tremendous speed advantages um for an app that's really kind of primarily mobile mm-hmm. um to be able to build like core mobile functionality out as APIs but then for certain tasks that you don't want to spend the time building for mobile they're like less important things or complicated things like I need to reset my password. Cool, put a reset password link in the app that opens up the web app and just build that with a template in the form. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of that tertiary stuff, forgot password workflows and like FAQ pages and little one-off reports and things like that that sometimes it's just easier to expose with the monolithic. Right. Cuz like whatever's serving your API can serve those pages. Cuz if you're looking at it from a purist perspective then you can make the additional mobile views and you can make an API endpoint you can you can make it all work yep but in the real world we often have constraints and yep. sometimes mm-hmm. you're just trying to get a client the most that you can get them for a small amount of money that's and right just doing something that it's not such an important part of the application it's not yeah, primary function. It, it's resetting your password, and yeah, and you can get the buy-in that, like, look, if we get this much of it, is everyone satisfied that we that we we have accomplished what the app needs to do, and we can come back and and fix up some of these other nice to haves, you know? Because right. mm-hmm. in the other in the alternate paradigm, right, where you don't have the ability, where you're not set up to just go quickly create a one-off page for a one-off task, um, what do you do when it's time to add something like that? You go, okay, need to make a change to the mobile app. Need to make a change to the front end app. Mm. Need to expose an API data access layer, and if you need to do that quickly, that definitely introduces lag time. You got three different code bases to update, potentially three different deployment workflows to go through, and you know, got to release and release the uh, update of the mobile app to get this out there. And yep. so it, it is kind of a nice jumping off point to be like, we have the ability to create extra functionality and extra pages of this application that don't exist within the mobile app because if we decide we need one, we can roll it out 
really quickly and not actually have to redeploy the mobile app, for example. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's it really depends, um, and it depends on. It probably doesn't depend on what you actually need as much as it depends on your timeline constraints and your risk tolerance. That's fair. That's fair mm-hmm. because this is this is a really common thing that companies want when they're looking to do application development is web facing, mobile facing. Yep. It's 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 pretty hard to say. Well, it depends on what kind of business you're running. Yeah. On what architecture we use because just everybody use wants those two things. Yeah. But. Yeah, time, timeline and budget and um, what is important to the customer that they have. Yeah, or, or your business out. if you're in a product organization. Right. Or, yeah. or I guess the, the business's customers, if, if there's in mm. consumers using your application. You kind of have to balance those things. Mm-hmm. And we could get all Hacker News comment thread here and be like, this is the only right way to do it. Mm. But in the real world, Hacker News commenters, you got to get shit done. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you know, sometimes you got to pinch your nose a little bit. Yeah, and uh, better to be adaptable. That's I right. Think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Adaptable and and indispensable mm-hmm. uh, is a good place to be in in any career uh, uh, track. So, um, there's definitely no right way. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Are there are there other architectures that we've that we've glazed over that we've that we've missed here? Um, I've, if it's fair to even call these architectures, yeah, it's kind of a broad concept. But it's, uh, you know, good old MVC. That guy's been around a long time, uh, but we've we've talked about that before. I think uh, you know one thing that does exist also. Uh, you talked about like most companies want web and mobile. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I think almost certainly if someone wants web, they want mobile. There are some use cases and scenarios that we've seen um, in which there's a mobile-only use case and not much of a web use case. Uh-huh. There's always some utility in it being able to access stuff from the web, mm. but like there are some cases where, particularly for applications that are like like employee-facing applications in the field, mm. where it's like, look, these people are never going to have a laptop. This is these are we're working with people that are, you know, like we're we're, we're working with a farmer. Right. They're going to they're have their phone when they're out in the field, but they're not dragging a computer out there. And so all of this functionality has to be in a mobile app. And we really don't care that much, except for maybe like the admin side and the reporting side of, of the website. You know, that's a, I see a common pattern with that. Like the mobile site gives you functionality, but if you need to manage your account, you got to do that in, in the mobile or the, the web in, in the web application. browser. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, see that a lot, and I don't think that changes your architecture. It no. sort of forces you to. I mean, you're building an API for sure. Then, mm-hmm. I mean, there's not really any such thing as a monolith, uh, quote unquote, for a uh, for a mobile app. Mm-hmm. You at least have to separate data access, <laughs> yeah, and the mobile app yeah, itself, un- unless it has no like mm. state that leaves the device. Right. So yeah. I guess if you're building like a mobile game, right, those still exist. But most of those talk to a server sure. these days. Got to report. You got to report those. Um, got to get those high scores. Got to get out. You got to get those on the leaderboards. You yeah. Know? yeah. Plus, uh, you know, how you else? Got to buy all the. Yeah, you got to buy stuff. the in-app purchases. Yeah. 
How else will you spend 99 cents on a new pair of shoes for your avatar? Ah, indeed. Important. You know, uh, 99 cents. <laughs> <laughs> Those things are at least $3. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you can see how many in-app purchases I make. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's an insane world. I remember reading a Reddit thread where someone was like, I can't tell if it was, it must have been a troll. Mm-hmm. To some extent. I mean, maybe it was real information, but like the way it was delivered was like, oh man, you ever tally up how much money you spend in iTunes from in-app purchases? Like I just did mine. It's a little bit higher than I expected, but, and then he like posted it and he had spent like, like $40,000 in the past year on in-app purchases for a couple of games. Dang. Yeah. It was just like very easily like, you know, hundred bucks here for like the the pack of 40,000 gems and a hundred bucks mm. there and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah. holy shit. Dang. That's crazy. I, I, when, uh, you can't put that much money in a 401k. No, no. What's the, the there's a limit on that. You yeah. do that. You do that for 30 years and you're going to, you could retire with like 5 million in the bank, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. What's, dang, what's that? What's that mobile game called that where you buy gems and you like it? Attack people's castles and oh, um, um, there's a bunch of Clash of Clans. Clash of Clans. Is that the yes. one? That's yeah. the one that yes. got, her, got her started there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When Clash started of up. Yep. When Clash of Clans came out, I was playing it a lot. And is this about to be an in-app purchase confessional? No, no. <laughs> I was I was pretty hardcore about not buying anything. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do everything on my own, and just however long it takes is how long it takes. And I. I think I spent like twenty bucks because the, you you got to a point where it was it was very apparent if you don't spend at least twenty dollars this game will become unplayable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I spent the twenty dollars and then the rest I was able to do and I yeah. was like having fun. I was leveling up. Like this is pretty cool. And then I started watching videos of the top players at the time. Yeah. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, this is something to shoot for. And then I watched an interview with the guy who was number one on the leaderboard at the time. And he said that he spent two thousand dollars a month on gems just just to just do raids. playing the game just just to, get in just, there. To, just to keep playing and maintain it. And then mm-hmm. I was like, "Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. I don't need to do yeah. this anymore." But hey, maybe that was like a, a worthwhile ROI based on you know ad revenue from YouTube streams. Like maybe that was a business expense for that person. Ah, uh, I, I guess. Yeah, I you mean, hope if you can, so. Hope so. <laughs> yeah. If you can make more than two thousand dollars a month on Twitch consistently then yeah. yeah go for it but i yeah i don't i don't i don't i i imagine if you're top of leaderboard for a major game there probably is some earning potential there um i have no idea what it actually is i have i know a lot of people dream i uh, have uh, i have found a list of oh god <laughs> top five software architecture patterns Ooh, yeah is microservices one of them yeah. okay okay so yeah, it's I know. Infrastructure I found another one yeah. that that wasn't, but yeah. So this one, layered architecture. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know what that was. What is that? MVC is an example. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, okay, right. That's what. Yeah, I was like, what's yeah. that? Yeah, like, yeah. okay. Like layers of your stack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Database, middleman language, HTML. So absence of a layered architecture is almost. Hmm. Chaos. Yeah, I know. I That's why I, I guess, guess I, I didn't think of that as a pattern, but it was. I guess. You know, it, well, in, in microservices, it, you kind of take those layers. You take your your data layer and your presentation layer, and you are actually separating those. Right. And, and individually within those code bases, it really is just kind of one layer to yeah. some extent. Yeah, you're yeah. like, this is my my 
M application, and this is my V application. And this is my <laughs> C application. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My Amazon bill yeah. is really high because yeah. they talk to each other a lot. Yeah. And each of them has a load balancer. Yeah, they all they, <laughs> they each have two to three pieces of hardware uh, supporting them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so and then layered application. A, yeah, layered application. I think we're all familiar with that, even if we didn't know it. Yeah. Um, and then there is event-driven architecture. Okay. You can do event-driven in a in layered a application. Layered ap- you can do event-driven. Absolutely. My, my, the extent of my knowledge on event-driven, app- event-driven applications is in the confines of JavaScript, because mm-hmm. there was a fad where Absolutely. everything that you were doing was... Well, make up all your make up all of your custom events because yeah. we don't have classes. So mm-hmm. let's yeah. like when this event happens, mm-hmm. when you click on this, let me trigger this custom event so that all these other things get notified. And in, in keystrokes is a, is another one in there. Not another architecture, but sure. in, in event driven. You know, that's something. And that's something kind of oh, new coming yes. with the the progressive web applications like that. That I've noticed in like PG Admin, we were, we were installing uh, a while back. For someone else. Um, and, <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Yes, no, I, P, PSQL is is all I need. That's your PG admin. That's my PG admin. I, I and I installed that too for me. Good, <laughs> so, good man. Good yeah, man. yeah. That that got baked into the uh, baked into the, the image, so, image yeah. so I can I can interact with the database. Um, but uh, it, it you know it used to be a desktop app, and and so now it's a web application, and feels like a desktop app though you right click on something and you can do key events and stuff and it's okay you know got event handlers in there for all that that's awesome we, we actually that the microservices app that we were talking about um actually employs that in the view some yeah. event driven event driven stuff i mean event driven architectures are really neat because um that is how you do any sort of app that like presents real time data because mm-hmm. otherwise you're 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 having to go pull and so any kind of yeah. push based thing yeah. is an event based architecture it doesn't have to just be an event loop within the programming language but also can be things like um, you know if you have an app that is receiving webhooks like incoming webhooks mm-hmm. that are being posted to it I mean in a way that that post um, HTTP request is an event that's coming in. And so that's a way of mm-hmm. rather than trying to subscribe and pull information, information flows through in the form of an event that bubbles all the way through the application. That's a, that's a really good uh, really good point on that. Um, that's something they list in the bullet points at the end of that, like user interfaces, obviously, JavaScript, yeah. Yeah. you know, that that the DOM. <laughs> yeah. And and JavaScript does event driven really well because that's what it was made to do. Exactly. And then asynchronous systems and data flow, mm-hmm. you know, is the other the so other if you thing. want a real time dashboard, I mean it needs to be event driven. Like mm-hmm. the creation of new data needs to trigger an event that pushes Whether that information. That's broadcast out. a WebSocket message or yeah. or post. Because in a absence of that, or, what you're you're doing is you're pulling the data and it's not really real time. Even if you pull it every five seconds, it's not real time, it's five seconds. And there's all that wasted effort of pulling when there's nothing new. Right. So event driven can be really efficient in that yeah. way. The data only updates, like machines are only doing work when the event happens. Right. You know? Exactly. Yep. Yep. Uh, now here's one I'm not sure about micro kernel architecture. Hmm. That sounds lower level. That's too low for me. He's a kernel with a K. Too. Come back up. So. Pull up, Alan. I know. Pull the yoke back. <laughs> I know. No. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> uh, let's see. Mini. Well, now I'm doing the boring thing where I 
muttered, oh <laughs> muttered to myself like an old man. I'm What's trying. The, I'm trying not to like get off a distraction, but I saw hey, that you post the. Do you see the gitter that I yeah, put in yeah. there? Uh, Check that out. Python 1.61. 1.6 really nice. one release note. That's the oldest one I could find. They added. That. They added an unbound exception. Uh, it was like when you access a variable within a function. Oh and it's, man, and it's I just want to go back accessed. and read the release. It now note. raises an exception. <laughs> when you, yeah, that's Dang. awesome. It's awesome. Wow, that's so cool. New modules haven't heard of any oh oh this got this new thing called dist utils that wow. came in 1.6 wow uh, and then a bunch of other shit zip file erlib 2 came in 1.6 wow. so it was it was capable yeah um yeah. codex and this unicode data library so it was like a database of unicode characters because they were that's <laughs> this is yeah. this is kind of fun to look at yeah. said no fucking idea the can of worms they were about to open <laughs> i going, know right like, we'll just kind of bolt unicode yeah. onto the side yeah that won't stop us from Most using python still 3 for 12 ASCII. years yeah you know? it'll be fine uh sorry what were you gonna say alex oh no, it's like it's like looking at a museum yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. it's no. it, it yeah that's cool. crazy uh I, I remembered an uh, an architecture that was hot for a minute, and I did use in several time in several cases just to try it out. And I know a couple of people just have experimenting. You, of, you know, yeah. Have you have you heard of DCI? No. Mm. It is made by the same guy who invented MVC. Okay. And that's interesting. Yeah. He is very adamant that MVC is an incomplete architecture. Well, he should have finished it. And he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so he created DCI. Which Data is, context and interaction. Yep. So you have your model view and controller layer, uh-huh. but then you also have your, your data layer, and then you have uh, context objects that are passed around. And the, uh, the I is, is like functionality what the system does it says is the interaction yes interesting so one of the uh one of the prime examples was when a user uh when a user logs in um the only often with the only scenario that a user needs some of that functionality when you're logging in is during that login process and then outside of that, you don't need reference to any of that. Like maybe what your role is, like which, where you're getting redirected to. Mm, or so something. instead of having these like fat models that have all this stuff on it, depending mm. on the context of where you're accessing that object, it may or may not have. Am I thinking about that the right way? Yes, yes. Or if you were if you were a super user and you were to click on you were to click on an action that only a super user can do, then and you hit, you know, there's the confirm box or whatever, and you said hit yes, then there would be a, a context that would give your user model the ability to execute those actions at oh, that moment. So it would get like wrapped in some higher order object, and yes. suddenly it was like a, it was a, you had a regular user object, and then it was imbued with the power mm. of super user for this particular code. task. As opposed to you having this super user object with all of these abilities going out through every single um, piece of the piece of the uh, of the app's functionality. So, did you have like a con like a super user context object that would wrap around a regular user object? Is that yeah. how it would work? It it could 
Not really. The, mm. the super user would be like a, a role on the user. So okay. you could differentiate that between a moderator or a normal user. So that's just a property of the user. Right. But something where um, like your, your ability to, like if you were going to delete a post or add a comment, users don't need the ability to add a comment in all um, cases. In all cases. Yeah. So when you go to create a comment, the user would be endowed with the context, the abilities to create a comment. Kind of Interesting. Thing. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I have to. I have to. I, I, told, I get. I, I get it at a very abstract level. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking at it on Wikipedia to, uh, to absorb that. Probably yeah. not the best place to find it. But I'm looking to see if there are any like GCI drop, drop, frameworks. Drop that in there, the gitter. There are not, drop that in the gitter if you, you don't mind. When, you got it, buddy. I was using it a few years back. There weren't any frameworks, so it was very much a mental model that you were architecting your code as. So it when you okay. would normally the when you normally have the classic developers being like, well, we got this new feature, do I put it on the model or do I put it in the controller? Mm. And it's like, well, I think we should have fat models. And like, well, I think we should have skinny models. And it's like, well, (laughs) (laughs) so let's put it in the controller. And instead of that, you would be like, all right, well, let's make a context for it. And where where do we give this object the ability to do this thing that we need it to do? Mm. Um, What ended up... um, making it fizzle out, at least in the Rails community, was the only way to consistently, uh, to use it effectively, was if you use this uh, function in Ruby called extend. Mm. Mm. And it basically says, I've got all these, I've got this object with all these properties on it, and when I call extend on this other object, it puts all these properties on it, just copies them over. Got it. And for the longest time, uh, that would break... uh, memory cache in Ruby because all the methods and properties would be mm. stored on this huge memory hash. And right. when you extend, it breaks all that. And so now all of your AP, now all of, all of your requests are super slow. Interesting. Mm. So people were like, nah, let's not do that. And then uh, it took Ruby a couple versions before they fixed extend. And then by then it was too late. The fad was gone. Nobody cared. <laughs> and, <laughs> nobody there to appreciate uh, it. Nobody there to appreciate it. <laughs> um, and I, I tried it um, with JavaScript when Backbone was still mm. kind of hot because mm-hmm. we didn't have Angular really taken off yet. Right. Um, and Extend in JavaScript uh, works instantaneously. Mm. You just, uh, well, there's not an Extend function, but um, you can add properties onto yeah. an object without breaking any caches. Uh, JavaScript don't care. Yeah, they don't care. Um, <laughs> and it was. Uh, in some cases, really cool, and in a lot of cases, just really confusing. Mm, I could see that spending that's, a lot of time just that's trying my to decide. Biggest concern was was it being confusing because you couldn't just go to a model and look at you know an instance and go, yeah, what what role is this? What what permissions? You'd have to think of it in the context. Yep, yep. And, was, and sometimes yep. when you're solving a problem, you're trying to think, all right, well what kind of object do I need here? And you're having a philosophical discussion with yourself about mm. what to do before um, before you're even, while, while you're still trying to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I guess at some point MVC was also just a mental model for how to organize your code. And then mm-hmm. people started implementing frameworks mm-hmm. that sort of enforced the pattern. Yep. So I'm looking and I and I've yet to find any sort of frameworks that enforce DCI as a pattern because it'd be yeah. cool to see 
Because that would, I mean, just like MVC, I could read mm-hmm. MVC on paper all day long. Yep. But the minute you put I did. a proper framework in front of me and show me how to use it and here's how you build a page, is like, oh, okay. That, yeah, it's much better. DCI right. would, like, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm, if, 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 if any listeners know of uh, an actual an framework, framework yeah, that yeah. implements DCI, I can't find it in my initial Googling here, but um, that'd be cool to see. Yeah, I, I so agree. So you use it in tandem with MVC. It's yes, complementary yes, to it's, it. Yeah, it's, a, it's an extension of MVC. Got it. Yeah. Um, That's a mouthful of acronym there. Yeah. Yes, MVC, DCI. Yeah. I guess, I guess you can just say DCI, and it implies that you're also MVC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, though, though I, what I, even though it, is, it was confusing to use, I strongly agree that a lot of MVC's problems is just trying to um, think of things as, well, if it's not a model, then it's a controller. Mm-hmm. And these are my only tools. And yeah. God forbid I make another folder called anything else because then I'd be writing Java. And I, ah. have, I have a wrench and a flathead screwdriver. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How the hell am I going to hammer this nail in? All right. You guys ready for this one? Lay it on me. Space based architecture. Ooh. Sounds, sounds cool. Sounds like David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe George Lucas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Tell, uh, tell me space-based architecture. Yeah, well, it, it's it's kind of what it sounds like. Space-based architecture is designed to avoid functional collapse under high load by splitting up both the processing and the storage between multiple servers. Mm. Elastic cache or um, and search. Yeah. yeah. Elastic okay. search. It's kind of what I'm thinking here because it's uh, yeah, a lot of architect, architects are starting to use this. Uh, it's a more amorphous term is cloud architecture, basically. Oh, okay. The, um, but one thing they talk about here, they got some quotes. Somebody is talking about uh, eliminating the database, which is scary. You don't want to do that, folks. Mm-mm. Well, I mean, you know. At some point. I mean, I, that, that, that won't hold up. Yeah. But, uh, uh, well, I mean, it kind of it does, though, I guess, with, uh, with some folks out there that use uh, MongoDB. <laughs> you know who you are. We've already eliminated the database. <laughs> we already pipe our data to DevNull. Yeah. Um, is, is that all five? Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, yeah. storing information in Monday, RAM yeah. makes jobs uh, much faster and spreading out the storage. Uh, makes, so it's storage space-based. Space, yeah. You're architecting around storage space. Yep. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. All right, who's got closing thoughts on architectures? Anyone? There, you Alan, know, you've been closing this out really well lately. No pressure. <laughs> there, uh, you know, I I definitely love thinking about them because I just love patterns. I in in music, I love the circle of fifths and just mm-hmm. thinking about that and all the possibilities, right? And that's I think that's a big part of why I like having these these discussions. Because then you learn about a new pattern, and then you think like, "Oh, possibilities! How could I implement that?" Um, you know. But then the real world happens, and uh, you know, you just got to make shit happen. And uh, and maybe some of these patterns help guide the way, you know. But but definitely, I would say at the end of the day, don't don't get too constrained into one pattern and just thinking like, I'm just going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. The, the pattern serves you. You don't serve the pattern. Yeah. yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. I, I think that I, I see it all over the place. It's part of just my mental mode of operating is that, you know, I tend to kind of hack towards functionality mm-hmm. and get there and, and make incremental progress and patterns help me because 
Um, it gives me a, a mental framework to work within. Mm. And the thing is that like that's always fascinating. It's not how my brain works, but like there are certain layers of abstraction, like mm. mental abstraction or mathematical abstraction that you can take a problem and boil it down into some fundamental things, and then you can define some fundamental rules about those fundamental things. And um, you can see things through that that you can't see from the weeds when you're in there. And so I can totally sit around and start kind of hacking on. This is like what separates me from an actual computer science mm. scientist. You I'm don't like have, writing You code. don't have a map. Yeah. You and have it, a yeah. machete. And exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going through and I'm like, oh, I'm getting closer. You know, I'm getting closer. That's kind of slow, you know. And, like, and then someone who actually knows how this shit works can just step back, like, from a whole layer above and be like, You'll never get there. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason why is like there is some there is some theoretical impossibility that you haven't found that cliff yet. Right. But you're walking toward it, you know, and and it's just like you can do that in 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 math. People yeah, like that I was are really say the uh, the meetup last night. Yeah, the data um, science the data scientist as a, a, yeah. a student asked a question. You know, is all this math important? Should I really learn all these algorithms and stuff? And he was like, "Yeah, absolutely, because you can still import libraries to do it. But now you'll know which one to do instead of testing fifty of them, fifty of them just to see which yeah. one worked best." You know, you can yeah, look at the, you a lot of time. yeah, because there's like a fundamental like you can look at the problem space and say like, "Oh, well, you will never be able to accomplish that in in four dimensions." Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah, like this this particular algorithm only works with two dimensional data. Right. And if you know that, you save yourself a lot of trouble of figuring out how to squeeze all four of those <laughs> columns into this into this library, right? But right, like, yeah. so that's where I think um, architectures come into play. People smarter than me have figured mm-hmm. out the theoretical, like how things should work, and the and the rules of the universe you're playing in, and then that kind of defines the path of, of where you can go. Yeah, man, that makes me think about uh, Parson Jason with C once mm-hmm. upon a time. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Whoa! Yep. Yeah, there's Re- no reading from a memory buffer uh, without <laughs> HTTP in there, and going like, man, smarter people already solved this problem. That's right. the The fad architectures upset me, but at the same time, it helps us grow. Indeed, mm-hmm. it does Indeed. It does help. True and, story. And we got Kubernetes out of it. Mm-hmm. Not calling microservices a fad, mm-hmm. but I am. Mm-hmm. Send me your hate mail. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast at higher loft. Do that. So. Uh, all right, guys, let's go home. Have a weekend. Yep. See you next week. Peace. Thanks for listening to Friday Afternoon Deploy, recorded and produced by the team at Lofty Labs. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to future episodes via iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also follow at Friday Deploy on Facebook and Twitter for episode previews, live streams, and other behind-the-scenes peaks. Past episodes and show notes on this episode can be found at friday.hirelofty.com. That's friday.h-i-r-e-l-o-f-t-y.com. If you'd like to contact the show, or if you're local to the Northwest Arkansas area and would like to be a guest on the show, you can email us at podcast at higherlofty.com.